From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. With me by phone today is Dr. Gerard Martin. He's a pediatric cardiologist at the Children's National Health System in Washington, D.C., where he's the CR-beta professor of cardiology. I know you were born and raised in Binghamton, um, but you went to medical school here at Upstate. When did you decide on pediatric cardiology? You know, uh, the State University of New York at Syracuse was a wonderful place to go to medical school. And uh, the the chairman of pediatrics there at the time was Dr. Frank Oski, and it was one of the most exciting programs uh, in, was pediatrics. And uh, during my pediatric training at uh, SUNY Upstate, I got exposed to two doctors, Henry Sondheimer and Ray Ellen Cavey, and they were just tremendous. Henry, Henry would take us into a lab and show us human hearts, and he had a number of them that had congenital heart defects, and he just had an incredible way of explaining the anatomy and what it caused in the baby and I was addicted. That was it. <laughs> um, and Ray Ellen Cavey came from Chicago, and she brought something called M-mode echocardiography to Upstate. And with that, we started diagnosing the heart defects with ultrasound. And that was back in 1982, 83. Huh. Um, and it was, uh, I'm sorry, it was 1980. Uh, and I just remember those two doctors that were part of the pediatric cardiology program and a young surgeon <clears throat> that they had, Ed Beauvais, they were just changing everything in upstate New York. They actually, you know, until they were all there, Babies used to leave Syracuse to go to New York City, and, and they changed that. Babies started getting their, their treatments at, uh, at Upstate Medical, and uh, it was all these, this young team of doctors. Oh, of course, now none of us are young. <laughs> Dr. Martin is a native of Binghamton who graduated from Syracuse University and got his medical degree from Upstate Medical University. And today, he's one of the nation's foremost authorities on congenital heart disease. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, you're welcome, Amber. It's good to uh, be on the uh, radio in upstate New York. <laughs> well, I was surprised to learn that this birth defect, congenital heart disease, impacts one in 100 babies born. I hadn't realized it was that prevalent. So well, Amber, you're uh, exactly right, and it's one of the biggest points I try to get across to uh, parents and to health care providers. Uh, congenital heart disease, or some people say congenital heart defects, are the most uh, common uh, birth defect in the United States, impacting, as you said, nearly one out of every hundred live births. When we say congenital heart defects or congenital heart disease, what sorts of defects um, are included in that? Okay, that's a, a great question, Amber. Uh, congenital heart defects are probably over 100 different conditions that impact the heart. You know, with acquired heart disease, the heart disease that adults get, where it's the cholesterol, smoking, obesity, and diabetes-related problem that causes narrowing of the small arteries on the surface of the heart and results in heart attacks or hypertension in adults, 
is pretty much one disease. Congenital heart defects are a myriad of defects that impact the heart, which is forming while you're, it is actually beating during fetal, fetal life. So we talk about uh, simple defects and more complicated defects. Uh, and so, and we describe those on the basis of how easy they are to treat. So the simple defects, quite easy and have an excellent outcome, where our more complex defects uh, are a little bit more tricky to treat and have a little less outcome. Uh, and, or we can break them into the categories of defects. Uh, about half of the problems are simply holes in the heart, a communication between the top chambers, the atria, or the bottom chambers, the ventricles, or a vessel in between the great arteries called the patent ductus arteriosus. There are also blockages, simple blockages in valves or arteries that account for about 20% of the defects. And then the uh, the the conditions that result in cyanosis, the so-called blue baby conditions, and that's about 15%, which is something called transposition and tetralogy. And then lastly, the really complex conditions, which are 15%. And these are things that there's a combination of a hole with a missing chamber or a missing valve with, or a, a, a missing artery that can uh, be much more difficult to repair, and we talk about correcting it, but we don't really correct it. Are these things that um, affect premature babies more more than full-term babies? So uh, the overall prevalence, as we stated, is about 1 in 100, and certainly... Uh, Babies that have congenital heart defects uh, may be born preterm, uh, and if they are born preterm and are small size, that can impact the the treatments they receive. Um, so, as a group, uh, there are more that are born preterm, or the more that are impacted by low birth weight. So I, what I was wondering, I mean, are some of these um, defects things that, that the baby just hasn't developed enough? Like, would they heal themselves if they were in the womb longer or, or not? No. Okay. The, the heart forms around six to eight weeks into a 40-week pregnancy. And at, at that time, it is a simple tube. And that simple tube undergoes a series of twists and turns, and it develops uh, valves, and it, de and it develops chambers and arteries. So that, that simple tube has to undergo this whole complex change, and it really has completed that change by about 10 to 12 weeks. So a oh. simple tube is, turns into... Uh, four chambers and two arteries and two sets of veins that come back to the heart, uh, all in a matter of six to eight weeks. And then after 12 weeks, the heart simply has to grow uh, and develop, and the, the muscle becomes more mature, and, the, and it is really a growth factor after 12 weeks. 
So are some babies known to have um, a heart defect before they're born? Some babies are found uh, prior to birth. Uh, we have a special field called fetal echocardiography, and uh, this is where we have special ultrasound techniques that can look at the fetal heart starting at around 12 weeks. Uh, we Women come to us because an obstetrician sees something on the ultrasound that looks like there's a problem and they send them to us. Other times it's because a, a, a woman has a high risk factor, a, a family history of heart defects or a maternal condition that we know might impact the baby like diabetes or uh, lupus, which huh. can impact the fetal heart during its development. All right. Well, once... Uh a defect is known, how, how are they treated? The uh, treatment uh, comes in several different types. We, um, we always start off with, with medical treatment, uh, but we then, for to actually correct things if it's necessary, we have both surgical interventions and catheter-based interventions. Um, surgery for congenital heart defects began in 1938. It's an interesting story. There was a rule that a, a good surgeon would never touch the heart. Uh, even uh, with trauma, uh, it, it was kind of unheard of in the 20s and 30s to actually touch the heart. It was kind of a taboo. Hmm. But uh, Dr. Gross in Boston uh, treated a condition in a, a young girl called uh, with patent ductus arteriosus. He actually did it when his boss was out of town. Okay. Uh, he had practiced in an animal lab with dogs, and uh, this was a common condition. It was one of the things that we could diagnose easily in the 1930s because of a, a very uh, characteristic heart murmur that, that the children would have. And dogs tend to have this thing. So he actually learned how to treat it in dogs, and his boss told him, don't ever do this in a child. And his boss went on vacation, and he did it while the boss was on vacation. Wow. And it was successful, and that started the field of cardiac surgery for children. He got fired and got rehired and actually became one of the most important early uh, surgeons for congenital heart defects. Wow. So it was a great story. <laughs> So we talk about the early era. The early era was from that first surgery in 1938 up until around 1980. And, and surgery was predominantly the way we dealt with it, but our, our surgery was not so good. Um, some of the, some of the, we didn't have the medicines, we didn't have the accurate non-invasive detection, we didn't have the teams set up to take care of children, and as a result, the mortality and morbidity of, of surgery was quite high. Uh, after 1980, we really got going with better, the better imaging, better medicines, better teams, uh, and different surgeries that were developed over that 40-year period, and that's when survival rates really improved. Uh, you know, prior to 1980, the 
survival could be 60% for some conditions or 50% for some conditions. And after 1980s, that, that came down to uh, survive, uh, the survival improved to probably close to 80%. And now in 2017, the survival is almost 97% for children with heart defects. Wow, that's huge. Uh- and, and then in the 1980s, uh, began this thing called catheter intervention, where you could actually put a balloon in the heart and open up a blockage. Um, you could uh, put a, a specialized catheter in the heart and actually make a hole, which helps some of our blue babies. Uh, and this catheter-based intervention really took off. So a lot of the simple things are now treated without without surgery. Children come in in the morning, have a procedure where we put a catheter, a small like piece of spaghetti tubing into the vein or artery in the leg, advance it into the heart, and we can now open blockages, we can close holes, and we can even replace valves now uh, without having to open the chest and use the heart-lung machine. Wow. Wow. Well, do we know um, the cause of, of heart defects in babies? We uh, are increasing our knowledge about the cause of heart defects in babies. I think at the time that I studied uh, in Syracuse, we used to talk about about 4 to 8% of the babies having genetic causes. And now with the whole human, human genome being discovered, we now know that that 4 to 8% is really 15 to 20% of the conditions can be attributed to a single gene abnormality or a group of genes that are abnormal or a whole chromosome that is abnormal in the child. 2% we think are environmental causes. It might be alcohol, it might be a medication, uh, a drug that's, that's causing the heart defect. But still, 80%, we really don't know. Uh, We like to use a fancy word called multifactorial that makes us sound smart. And when we say multifactorial, we're we're saying that there's probably some genetic predisposition with an environmental trigger. In other words, something happens during that pregnancy, a cold or an infection or something that triggers a circumstance, that triggers a gene that then results in an altered development of the human heart between that six and 12 week gestation. Oh, interesting. Well, your research and advocacy has led to some uniform screening for um, congenital heart defects. Can you explain sure. what that is? Another way that we can break down congenital heart disease and can be by looking at a group of the defects that we call critical, critical defects. These are defects that if they're not found in the first hours or days or weeks after birth, that child, if they're sent home from the hospital, can suffer a death at home, almost like a crib death, but we wouldn't call it a a SIDS because it, it was actually due to the congenital heart defect. And the problem was is that we, the physical exam was only about 50% accurate 
and finding all the babies at the time of discharge from the hospital. Hmm. A murmur may or may not be present in some of these life-threatening conditions. And the human eye can't see the cyanosis or the blueness that some of the babies have. Um, And so babies were being sent home probably about a third to 40% of babies were being late detected. And as a result, there were more deaths and or more babies that got sick prior to their repairs. Now, what we've added in the United States is that every baby, before they leave the hospital, we've advocated that every baby has their oxygen level measured by a simple test called pulse oximetry. This is something that probably anyone that's gone to the emergency room for a problem has had a a little probe put on their finger. It emits a light. That light uh, goes in and it bounces off the red blood cells and the the capillaries in your finger and the wave comes back and it can measure the amount of oxygen in your arterial blood. So that tells them how well the blood is circulating? That's right. Well, not how well it's oxygen. circulating. It can tell you if your the arterial blood has a normal level of oxygen. Okay. Babies with critical congenital heart defects have lower levels of oxygen in their blood. And unfortunately, the human eye can't see that accurately. And we've had this test around for 20, 30 years, and we've never applied it to the population. To, to, to make discharge from the newborn nursery safer. So a number of us went and testified uh, before a, a Health and Human Service Committee uh, several years ago. We then started uh, getting the large medical societies to endorse the, this, like the American Heart Association, American Academy of Pediatrics, American College of Cardiology, and then we went to Secretary Sebelius at Health and Human Services, and she decided that this was a good thing to add to the recommended uniform screening paddle. You know, all babies used to get a, a their heel pricked, and they would get tested for certain genetic conditions. And these conditions were probably 10 times less common than congenital heart defects but those were the ones that were chosen to screen for. And, and now we've added the pulse oximetry, and as a result, we're catching babies before they leave the hospital, and uh, we're, we're saving more lives. Very good. That's very good to know. Thank you so much for being here. My guest has been Dr. Gerard Martin, a pediatric cardiologist and Upstate graduate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.